Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Hey guys, Eric here. I want to take a second to talk to you about one of our newest sponsors that is Ray Allen. You know, I worked at a police department. One thing that police administrators like is they like to do one purchase order for all your stuff. They like to go to one place to get everything they can. RayAllen.com is that place for canine. They have everything from heat alarms to muzzles, first aid, harnesses, bowls, all the way down to the smallest little thing. Kennels, kennel supplies, everything you could need for kennels, even kennel flooring they have in there. RayAllen.com, right there in Colorado Springs, man. American made, 70 years they've been in business. 70 years supplying canine units, sport guys, Joe Schmo, regular guys like me now. You know, I'm retired. I need a place to go get my stuff. RayAllen.com. Here's the best part is they're giving us a discount code. Working Dog Radio. Put it in check out get 10% off your order rayallen.com r-a-y-a-l-l-e-n.com truesintk9.com that's the letter k the number nine truesintk9.com actual explosive odors suspended in silica not a pseudo hit them up truesintk9.com it's no secret that Eric and I are both professional trainers, meaning that we go through a lot of toys teaching dogs to find drugs, bombs, bugs, whatever. The problem always is durability or safety. When we get a dog that's a super hard biter and a chewer, we got to go with a harder toy, which tears up their teeth. Or we get a dog that goes with a softer toy, and we always have an issue with durability or safety, having them chew it up and swallow it. I think a good solution to that is the guys from USA-K9.com. USA K9 uses a natural rubber, which is much safer and environmentally friendly, plus... They're also USA made and they're restringable, which is a huge deal for me since we use Dutch boxes. For every purchase you guys make using the discount code K9PRO, that's the letter K, the number 9, P-R-O, they're going to donate 10% of that sale so that we can give away some toys to deployed MWD teams across the world. Hit them up, USA-K9.com. Use the discount code, the letter K, the number 9, P-R-O. That's Canine Pro. Since 1987, Bill Heiser and Southern Coast Canine have been providing better training, better service, and better dogs. Bill personally hand-selects every dog in Europe to ensure that the quality is always up to his standards. Every employee at Southern Coast Canine is charged with being a guardian of their values. Those values guide both their business and personal relationship. They believe that their dedication to the fundamental tenets of honesty, integrity, and fair business dealings ensure a legacy of success. So when you or your canine unit is looking for that dog, the one that will perform at the highest level, be sure to give Southern Coast Canine a call at 877-903-DOGS. That's 877-903-3647. Let them know that Eric and Ted from Working Dog Radio sent you. All right, everybody, we are back, Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite with another fantastic episode for you. This is our Christmas edition. Um, yes. December 23rd. Um, I am in Canton, Ohio today. It was 55 degrees in Canton. I wore a t-shirt. It was great. Ted, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, what's going on, Ted? Uh, I've got handlers here for the next week, and then I take a break, and then uh, I've got six. I got six handlers showing up first Monday in January for handler school. Uh, all dual purpose. So 
uh, that should be interesting. And we're having unseasonably warm weather too. Although I'm, I fucking hate being cold. Hey, and if it sounds like Eric and I aren't farting into tubas anymore, everybody, we sort of like upgraded everything and we have decided to do all the uh, editing in house. Alicia is doing the editing now. So it sounds good. And Eric and I don't sound like we're yelling like the peanuts, uh, professor Charlie Brown. So there's that. Now it sounds like I'm sitting in your car next to you yelling at you, which is fucking great. You're just like, this is what it's like to be in handler school with me. <laughs> yeah. So other than that, Kendall came up from St. Do- St. Working Dogs down in Texas, dropped off a dog with us for, dropped a couple dogs with us for a department. And then uh, I got a new puppy yesterday. Uh, her name is Hype. She is bred by Kendall. Uh, it's going to be our new breeding female. And she's a f- fucking pain in the ass already. And I hate puppies. So <laughs> like, oh God. Who oh, hates puppies? You get a lot of puppies. So oh God. Fuck my life. She's torn shit up. Already gone after the other dogs. Fucked around with the big patrol dogs. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. yeah. So she's a nice dog. She's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm going to be doing explosives with her, you know, bitey things. So should be fun. Should be interesting. I'm sure Alicia put her all over social media, so it'll be fun. But yeah, so what do you got going on? Uh, oh my God, I got so <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> Dude, I can't. I made a mistake. I, it, like, as we're recording this, I have too many. Because um, I, I still got to do like the admin crap for the business and like go into the daycare for, I got to run here for like 10 minutes and three and a half hours later, I'm just, just getting done. But um, working dog wise, I got dog in my kennel to go to Aruba. I have bomb dog that I'm training for a friend over in New York. Got a couple lined up, I think, of what I'm looking at uh, bringing in a couple uh, dogs for the kennel that aren't you know aren't sold or anything like that for me to train I too have a puppy coming a Malinois coming from Europe here I'll already have it by the time this airs I have him I hate puppies too but what are you gonna do <laughs> just remember puppies turn into awesome things <laughs> hopefully hopefully yeah so doing, doing all that just last night was um, Christmas party for my union the old union before I retired and it, it's one of my favorite parties of the year actually it's a real good time and so I went and had a good time granted I've only been gone for like a month but got to see you know some of the guys and guys that hadn't seen me or didn't come to my retirement party or hadn't seen so that was pretty cool had a good time last night there but could only stay for a couple hours because i had to go train pet dogs so uh (laughs) it never ends so yeah anyways so i had this will bring us around to our guest so i had a handler in from south carolina last week she came up with her dog her name is tara she's uh the handler's name is tara nice lady good dedicated handler she brought her dog apart up for me to do some work with you know just to um do what we do you know i mean take the dog to the next level as far as scenario based and put some pressure on the dog and her some ideas on some things to go because she's in charge of her unit now and needs to learn some things to help need some direction right so she came up and uh we had a real good time but we were talking about some medical issues with dogs and she's like hey i went to this class with this this group and this lady veterinarian and it was incredible and she showed me some of the slides and gave me her name and uh that was like thursday like a week ago and so here we are we had and i realized i'm like we haven't done any medical issues and uh, or episodes and our our guys go to a lot of the first aid stuff but i wanted to actually talk to a tactical veterinarian that um 
can really get into some pretty heavy stuff, especially numbers and research. And uh, so we are lucky to have on with us tonight Janice Baker uh, from the Veterinary Tackle Group coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Janice, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing, we're doing awesome, man. I, I'm so happy that you got on it in, in such quick notice too, man. I know you guys are super busy down there, but there, there were some things that I saw in that uh, slide presentation that I was like, man, that stuff's pretty legit. And we'll get into some of that later that might blow some people's minds or at least make them, you know, think back to some issues they were having with a dog that, that could be traced to a couple things. So as we usually do, we like to have the guests, you know, tell a little bit about themselves and where they started and, and kind of how their career path has led them to today. So go ahead and kick that off for me. All right. Thanks. Um, first of all, thanks so much for having me here. I'm really glad you reached out. So uh, like you said, my name is Dennis Baker. I'm a veterinarian. Um, I have about, oh, almost 19 years in the military, um, in the active duty, and then for about the last seven years in the reserves. So I joined the military. I was actually a horse veterinarian. I just got out of some specialty training for that. My first assignment, the horses, um, was at the um, at Arlington Cemetery, so Fort Myer, Arlington Cemetery with Case on Horses. But I was there. I got assigned there in October of 2000. Less than a year later, we had, um, you know, 9-11 happened. I was doing surgery on a working dog when uh, we heard the plane fly over us. We heard all the explosions and the commotion and stuff. And I credit that dog. The dog's name was Beer. I credit that dog with saving my life and the lives of several of my veterinary uh, colleagues because we were supposed to be at the Pentagon that morning doing some food inspection training with something funny that have to do. And, um, and the place that we were supposed to be was vaporized. But Beer had a problem with his paw and we had a surgery scheduled in like a week, but that morning, early morning, the handler caught us and said, hey, it busted open. Would you, you know, can you do the surgery today? So instead of going down there, my entire team didn't go down to the Pentagon. We stayed at Fort Myer and did surgery on the dog. And had we not done that, had it not been for Bear and his bum paw, we probably wouldn't be here today. So uh, immediately after that, we uh, there was such a, you know, pardon the pun, an explosion of dogs. There was quadrupled the number of dogs in the military and government just for, you know, for force protection and security. And it, we got so busy with dealing with that situation that the, the Army said, you know, forget your horses, we'll bring somebody else in to do that. It's going to be all dogs all the time. And so I've just never looked back. I mean, that's the first time I actually was in the field working with the dogs. We had, had to be down there on the side of the Pentagon and, and surrounding areas. And I got to see how the dogs actually work and just absolutely amazed me. And I fell in love with that and never looked back. So went to, you know, my next assignment a couple, couple months later was up at Fort Bragg with uh, a special forces unit. And uh, that was a medical unit and hopped from there to another special forces or special operations unit where I was working a lot with dogs downrange going and then um, my, one of my main jobs was to develop better training because we did up to that point we taught canine first aid as, as we called it and I was getting feedback really quickly that that wasn't enough and imagine you know that we're asked and Arians in the army were asked by canine emergency training but I'd never seen a gunshot wound in a dog I'd never you know I took care of pretty healthy dogs otherwise so um, they said you're going to be in charge of revamping this training and, and in charge of developing medevac plans and train medics on how to uh, train the dogs. So that's what I did myself and a couple of my uh, technicians, colleagues that were pretty astute. We uh, we spent the next seven years working on that. And about that time, I got out of the Army, and uh, after several other assignments, I, I, think I was the first veterinarian assigned to Naval Special Warfare, and which was really pretty cool. And uh, when I got done with that, 
um, went out and worked for the federal government for a while doing non-veterinary stuff and eventually realized that, that uh, I really missed being a veterinarian and I wanted to go back to I wanted to go back to tactical medicine and take what we learned in the military to law enforcement because we realized that they're, they just don't have access to that kind of information like, like we did in the military. And so then uh, with a couple of my colleagues, I started veterinary tactical group and, um, and they've since both retired and gone on to bigger and better things. But we still have VTG and our, our main goal is doing, um, we do canine emergency training, like the tactical medicine training. We do a lot of research and development, research on occupational hazards dog and and really trying to sort out there's so many things in veterinary medicine that don't really know we've just kind of all always done them that way there's not a lot of science behind it not a lot of lessons learned from the field applied to it so we do a lot of research and development in BTG just taking concepts like the one you mentioned that, that we'll talk about with the drug that sort it out you know figure out what's the down and dirty truth apply the science to it get that kind of validation and then apply it to the field and and then when we get the sort of the down and dirty truth turn that around and, and immediately give it back to the, the canine teams in the field they can use it so that's um, that's primarily how I got here I've been doing the permanently and full-time job now 2009 and we're um, we have instructors and consultants all over the United States and a little bit over the world and we really uh, it's just it's just a dream job for me to be able to do this full-time and, and uh, work with the canine organizations great well I know veterinary tactical group is really into a lot on the research side uh, has there been any myths or things that you were able to bust, so to speak? You know, talking about Mythbusters earlier. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, things that you've been able to. I am the ultimate Mythbuster. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, so the one that we were talking about a bit ago, it's not actually that come from me. It came from a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Eileen Jenkins, but um, she uh, conducted just a brilliant but very very basic study on drugs that are commonly used in dogs and do they affect scent detection. So at what we typically give military dog, which at the time, all the dogs would get doxycycline, uh, an antibiotic, and they it, which we don't do that anymore. But, and then also the most common drug that we prescribe, usually for diarrhea and GI effect, is a drug called metronidazole. And, and he knew that in humans, those two drugs have been associated with a temporary loss of smell. He looked at those two drugs that we, we give so commonly to dogs and found that um, metronidazole had a significant effect on um, scent detection in dogs. So of all the dogs gave it to, about half of them lost their ability to perform basic detection um, for as much as a week after they were taking it. And that's huge. You know, what else yeah. are giving dogs without even thinking about it that is affecting their scent detection? And yeah, just it, in the, uh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say this is anecdotal because, I mean, you know, we have a kennel with like 40 whatever dogs and with we, and like Eric said earlier, we give these dogs this stuff all the time. And there's been times where I'll have, you know, some of the dogs and they'll be working through detection problems and I'll be like, what in the fuck is wrong with you like did you for did you somehow just decide you don't know how to do this anymore and the answer is no they didn't they just can't smell dummy so like like i said i told my yeah. kennel master this and he was like are you fucking kidding me i'm like no i swear to god like this is this is the truth like this would happen he was like does it come back yes like you said it comes back so so like the big takeaway here is if you're a handler listening to this and you take a dog to the vet like oh we're gonna give the dog metro be like you got anything else <laughs> like so what should they ask for if it's not metro um, it depends on what the problem is. So the big reason that we give metronidazole, the main reason of it is for something with the GI system, and it's usually just diarrhea. So. Right. 
There are a lot of drugs that can handle uh, diarrhea depending on the cause of it. There are certain conditions that metronidazole is absolutely the best drug to give, and that's the one you want your dog on, and that's when you just need to suck it up and know that, you know, you better not put the dog back to work until you've really tested that he can smell again. But it's hard to say which drugs to, to, to ask for instead. You know, the veterinarian will know that. Um, but it depends on the problem. But the big takeaway for veterinarians there is that we tend to just throw, you know, you come into our clinic, spend money, want to help you. If we were just to say, well, you know, that diarrhea is probably going to go away on its own in two or three days. Just suck it up. And you're not going to be happy with us. You're going to want something. And so right. we tend to just metronize all because, you know, what, maybe that diarrhea wasn't caused by something that metronized even type. And so now what we say is just, if you're going to give it to a working dog, just make sure that absolutely the reason that the dog, dog needs metronize all because he's got it's usually like uh, some kind of waterborne, you know, there's a bunch of little bugs. I don't want to get too scientific, but a bunch of bugs and, and organisms that they drink water, you know, pond water or slime. You know, my dog jumped in a pond full of ducks today to, to uh, chase them, and he'll probably break with diarrhea tomorrow because it's pretty yucky water. And so those are the kinds of things that are usually response to that. So if, if your veterinarian says they absolutely need it, you know, make just make arrangements, deal with that and the, the potential temporary loss of smell. But otherwise, um, you know, educating your veterinarian, and a lot of veterinarians just aren't familiar with that. It's, it's pretty cool. You know, five years ago, nobody knew about this. And now right. if I go to any, uh, and I go speak with working dog veterinarian, Everyone knows it. And so just educating your veterinarian ahead of time. So I mentioned this to Scott today, my my partner at the kennel, um, the old grumpy green beret. And he was like, you know... And he brought up an interesting point because, you know, we send these dogs off into La La Land and they go to their training groups and wherever else and they go to training. And uh, because of Florida versus Harris, we have such a huge dependence on training records now. And if a dog seems off um, during training, like people start like red flags start coming up, whatever else. And Scott was like, you know what? You know, you need to. Basically, he told me to update our our handler manual that if the dogs are on Metro, that that needs to be noted in training. If the dogs walk odor, if they do anything weird that they wouldn't ordinarily do in uh, you know a normal training environment or in, or like a normal deployment situation, I was like, oh shit, yeah, that's a good idea. So we can then like trace back because you know the first thing you know attorneys ask are like, oh, is your dog ever false alerted? Which is a misnomer now anyway, but still, like if you're answering the question and playing the game, you can say yeah, but you know, it was because of this or whatever the other. And so, you know, it brought up an interesting conversation today during handler school. And I was telling my handlers today, I was like, yeah, so, you know, this is what the drug's called. And if the vet ever gives it to you, like this is what you need to know. So, I mean, it's like, I didn't know. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. <laughs> for sure. It's a great idea. I mean, I think they probably, probably wise to note um, somewhere, maybe not on your official training records, but somewhere note when your dog's going to training or working if there aren't any medications. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's probably other medications out there. We don't we don't even know that they affect the smell because they've never been studied. And, and you know, it was really a student, Colonel Jenkins, to, to think of that. And nobody else had really done that before. And, you know, she wasn't a colonel back then. She, um, I think she was a major at the time, which in the, you know, in the military terms is kind of mid-level. And for her to bring that forth and say, I'm going to study this and, um, and then come out with those results, it was just brilliant. So one of the studies that you've done that Eric and I were talking about and that we were talking 
talking about before we started recording. Super interesting is the heat injuries and the discrepancy and and disparagement between um, law enforcement canines in the United States and then the deployed military working dogs and uh, multi-purpose canine teams and special operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, and just kind of like in the general Middle East. So let's kind of go that direction and see. Sure. Yeah. So um, that's heat injury is my favorite topic, and I uh, my staff know that that when I teach the heat injury class, it it ends up being you know, one hour class ends up being like three hours, so they have to cut me short, and uh, it's just such an interesting topic to me. It's overall we haven't studied this officially, but we just know from experience that overall it is the number one cause of in training or um, actual operations in all working dogs. If you combine um, law enforcement, military, search and rescue dog, if they die die suddenly um, in training or working, it's, that's the number one cause. And it's, um, it's not a very sexy disease. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It, it doesn't get the attention that gunshot wounds or stabbing does. And it, when it does get attention, it gets negative attention. It's, it, if the dog is, you know, it comes to heat injury, um, they instantly blame the handler. You know, the social media and the, the public instantly blame the handler. And it's not like there's a perpetrator, you know, like with a gunshot wound where they, you can blame that person for injuring the dog. And so it brings a lot of negative attention. It doesn't get a lot of attention in, in research and science. You know, I was joking earlier that they throw money at, at sexy things like, you know, fentanyl exposure in dogs and, and uh, other kinds of research. And I, I literally have sold t-shirts to raise money for the equipment I needed to do heat injury research. And, you know, I need to have a bake sale or something, maybe I can um, earn the money that way. So it's, it is the number one killer in dogs um, as far as accidental or traumatic death. And it doesn't have a lot of attention. So we, several years ago, some colleagues and I saw, noticed something in dogs. You know, we'd always learned that 104 degrees is, is dangerous. 104 degrees are of a rectal temperature of a dog is dangerous. You need to shut the dog down and cool them off. 106, they're probably going to heat stroke. And I got a call from one of my technicians worked in a special operations unit. She worked remotely from me. And she called me and said, I had a dog come in. His temperature was 107 today. We cooled him down really fast, but the dog looked fine. And I don't know what to think of this. So we walked her through that. A couple days later, a technician from the Navy called me and said the same exact thing. Brought a dog in today. He was limping. I took his vital signs, you know, to start his Exam. It was 108 degrees. I panicked. We cooled him down, but, but he looked fine. Doesn't look like a heat injury. And so we started looking at that, and uh, and then came to realize that dogs like Malinois and Dutch Shepherds and the really high intensity dogs, they can get a body temperature of up to 107, 108, and it's perfectly normal. And as long as they don't stay that way very long. Um, and it, so we started looking at. I, I was going to write an article for a for a medical journal, uh, the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, just an informational article for medics to treat heat injury in dogs. And I, I started looking for references, you know, like where does it actually say in the scientific literature that this is a dangerous temperature? I couldn't find it. So I, so I consulted with some colleagues of mine that, that do epidemiology, you know, they do that kind of trace back work, and they couldn't find it either. And we realized that it, there was actually a lot of research evidence to show it, um, that in, in experimental settings, dogs can get that hot and not have a problem. So why had that, and a lot of that stuff was in these gear journals, like the Journal of Aviation and space medicine and, and the stuff they'd done for the space program years ago and it never filtered into the veterinary community so they are to this day teaching in veterinary schools that 104 is dangerous and that you should shut a dog down and cool it down if it gets that hot well i guarantee you that most malinois and dutchies and 
even some German Shepherds. When you take them out of the fox, you know, the, the truck fox or whatever, to go train with them, in anticipation of training or work, their temperature will be 104. And they're already to the temperature that we can we used to consider dangerous. So based on that, we did a, a really intense trace back look at, at several different things, like what body temperature is actually dangerous. There, another big complete myth that was out there and still is to some degree is that once a dog has a heat injury, it's never the same. He's always more at risk for heat injury. Yeah, I and heard we that. found that not only yeah, not only had that never been studied, but it, that was based on human medicine, you know, that's what we thought with people. And that's yep. since been debunked in the human world. And we've never we've never updated that. So I can't think of how many dogs were shut down or, or retired from the military or, or didn't deploy to hot areas because we believe that was true. And now we you know, know it's not. There's a company, actually, okay, there's a handler, there's a friend of mine, it's on the East Coast. He worked for a fairly large state agency. Quit, already retired, sorry. And um, he went to work for a company called Blue Development or Blue Dev Group, which does all kinds of weird, like software integration, everything else. Well, anyway, they did a special implant for dogs. And um, yeah. the imp, the imp, right. So the implant then feeds off of that special wireless network, blah, blah, blah. Right. So the handler can then see, and not only the handler, but anybody that with the information that's needed to look at it can see real time telemetry basically on the dog. And they were running border patrol dogs with, and it was the same conversation I had with this guy. He was like, you know, we're supposed to keep the dogs around 103, and these dogs, I don't want to say they acclimated, but, you know, these dogs in El Paso, these dogs in Arizona, in the middle of the summertime, summertime are running 106, 107 degrees, and they're running 106, 107 degrees for, you know, two hours-ish, and then the handlers cool them down, and the dogs are fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. And the blue... De- and so, it, it's so funny you mentioned this, because this brings this full circle. This conversation happened, like, five years ago. And this guy's like, they thought the fucking sensors were all messed up, because, like, they were <laughs> they were recalibrating these... And these, these implants are implanted, like, they cut the dog open and implant these, like, sensors, right? And it runs on, it's like, basically like Bluetooth. And he was like, we thought the sensors were fucked up, and they weren't. Like, they recalibrated these things to within, like, a tentative degree or something. Thing. And they're like, well, so basically these dogs just kind of like acclimate and they can operate at 105, 106 degrees and no problem. And we cool them down and they come back. No big deal. I'm like, uh, and yeah. at the time I was like, really? Because I'd heard the same thing. Like, you know, and so it's interesting you mentioned that because that technology has been around oh, shit for like six years now, seven, I guess. And I mean, yeah. those guys and I mean, that shit's real time. And those Border Patrol dogs are out hunting in the middle of Arizona or New Mexico or wherever, Texas. And, you know, they're running, like you said, they get out of the box and they're already at critical, te- or well, what is conventional wisdom, I guess, at critical temp. And right. so, yeah, no, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> full, full circle. Wow. Yeah. If we know this being the, the most deadly thing, the guys are out there. The dog is, you know, say this, it's our buddy uh, that's got the canine rev at the, at the border patrol. Oh yeah. He's noticing some, some issues with his dog. Let's real quick talk about fastest way to cool him off and kind of a time frame on if you know on degrees like what can you do for a certain amount of time to bring him down two three degrees or whatever you would need to or, or how long can they go with that 107 108 yeah that's a great question and you know every dog different and the uh, well, the only thing we can say about that it's just based on how acclimated the dog is and, and how conditioned the dog is to that so you know if you, if you have a little fat schnauzer that lives on the couch that dog gets 100 
him for, it's probably going to be a heat injury. But can have, you know, one of these really conditioned athletic, you know, canine athletes that gets 108, and they could probably stay there, you know, half an hour or so. It, it really depends on the dog. And so knowing your dog, when we sit, we really emphasize getting a handle on your own dog's working temperature. So how are you going to do that? If you had that implantable thing, that would be great. Um, <laughs> but not all, you know, they're really expensive. Not all dogs have that. Yeah. Um, uh, just a simple digital rectal thermometer would cost $10 in the pharmacy. Um, your dog's not going to appreciate that very much. But take temperature of your dog when he's chilling out. If as much, you know, the, the time that your dog can be the most possibly chill, take your dog's temperature and record that. And then get them all, you know, put on their vest. We have a, a great video of a, of a young dog that's getting kitted up. They're putting, trying to put her vest on. And she's watching somebody carry the bite suit by. And she's fruit looping out. And her temperature was, uh, was 104. And so uh, take your dog's temperature when he's anticipating work. Whatever that is, dog, being in the vehicle, getting out of the vehicle. And then work your dog and take his temperature again. And then continue to take it until the temperature gets back to baseline. So for an athletic dog, we used to say baseline was 103. Another way to look at that is we know that 104 is pretty safe in an athletic dog. In fact, we see a lot of changes. In, you know, if you have a heat injury, an actual dog with heat stroke, and we're cooling them down, when we get them down to 104, that's when we start seeing changes in their mentation, in their heart rate, and all these um, these other things. And so we say 104 is what we call safe temperature, 103 is baseline. So take the dog's temperature again every five minutes or so until it gets down back to baseline and, and kind of gauge how long that took for your dog. If your dog's not overheating, let him passively cool down and, and don't do anything to him and take it. And then try other methods, you know, try dousing him down with water, ice water, regular temperature like tap water, or putting him in a fan premium air conditioning and um, this is a lot of temperature taking and your dog's really going to hate you but that's how you learn what your dog can can deal with and, and what's best for your dog and that that touches on another topic is one of the myths about heat injuries that we say quite a lot is that you shouldn't use ice water or cold water to cool a hot dog down the reason for that is we say that the blood vessels in their skin of their peripheral vessels will constrict because of the cold and that part is true but it's thought that that will slow cooling and the reality of dogs, they don't really use their skin to cool down that much. Not like us, because we sweat. Dogs don't really use that method very much. Most of their cooling comes from panting. So you can use cool water on them or ice water. It does cause vasoconstriction, but it doesn't really slow cooling down because they weren't going to use that method to cool down very much anyway. So you're not taking away anything that they had. There's only been one study ever that looked at the temperature of the water for cooling, and that study in the 80s showed that um, ice water was actually the fastest way to cool a dog down and so um, physics always works yeah exactly exactly you put something cold on a hot dog the hot things get colder that faster and that's pretty basic that's awesome yeah we're gonna go ahead and take a second here we're gonna take a break and uh hear from our sponsors and we'll come back with janice baker of, of the veterinary tactical group Let's take a second and talk about canine training seminars. You definitely don't want to shortchange yourself when it comes to this type of stuff. That's why you should join Eric and I at HITS in Chicago this year, the week of August 13th to the 16th. That's 2019. We know training budgets are always tight, especially for canine. And that's why HITS goes the extra mile for you guys. And let's be honest, there's no other canine training conference on the planet like HITS that has a depth and breadth of instructors. HITS has now gotten so large and so successful that the 2019 conference will be held in the largest convention center in North America. That's Chicago's McCormick Place. There's no secret as to why these guys are so successful. 
successful. It's because canine handlers want to learn from canine trainers who are police dogs themselves. That's because real world experience matters when it comes to these type of police dog trainers. The guys who run Hits are still working police dogs, just like the guys listening to this podcast. Hits is the real deal because it's run by real current police dog handlers and trainers. Hits has had 1,100 people in attendance this year in Washington, D.C. That was actual numbers. Eric and I were there. I promise it was busy. You don't want to miss your chance to be part of that kind of training and more importantly, that kind of networking and information exchange. Visit them on the web and register early to save some money. You just got to go to hitscanine.net to register and save big time. There's also information there about discounts for the hotel and where the hotel's at. Hits has three full days of training with five open classrooms going on all at the same time. Hits always does a survey at the end of the conference to take suggestions for new training classes for the coming year. Your core classes in detector training, techniques, drug case, case law updates, patrol tactics, training techniques for real world deployments just keep getting better and better and better. And then you have the multiple classes about bomb detection that's taught by different instructors to give you different ideas. And the list doesn't stop there. Handlers who work dog in jails and in prisons have classes set up specifically for them to address specific issues for those environments. And they want to learn from guys that are doing that actively now. And they are. What if you want to learn about canine nutrition or emergency first aid? They got it covered. What if you're a canine supervisor who doesn't even work a dog and never has, but you need to know how to run a unit better? They've got some of the best in the industry that are going to be there running classes specifically for that. So go check out what's new. HitsK9.net, the letter K, the number nine. Another reason why Hits is the most popular canine training conference is the vendors. There's going to be a hundred vendor booths, all the best canine gear on the market. Come join us at Hits and meet the guys who make the stuff you use every single day at work. Our vendors make coming to Hits an experience like nothing else. There's raffles every day that you don't even have to sign up for. And they gave away, I think it last count, 40 grand worth of stuff last year while we were there. And it was fantastic. So hit them up. Hits, the letter K, the number nine, dot net. Hey guys, Eric here. I want to take a second to talk to you about one of our newest sponsors that is Ray Allen. You know, I worked at a police department. One thing that police administrators like is they like to do one purchase order for all your stuff. They like to go to one place to get everything they can. RayAllen.com is that place for canine. They have everything from heat alarms to muzzles, first aid, harnesses, uh, bowls, all the way down to the smallest little thing. Kennels, kennel supplies, everything you can need for kennels, even kennel flooring they have in there. RayAllen.com, right there in Colorado Springs, man. American made. 70 years they've been in business. 70 years supplying canine units, sport guys, Joe Schmo, regular guys like me now. You know, I'm retired. I need a place to go get my stuff. RayAllen.com. Here's the best part is they're giving us a discount code. Working Dog Radio. Put it in checkout. Get 10% off your order. RayAllen.com. R-A-Y-A-L-L-E-N.com. Let me take a second and talk to the explosive handlers here. Everybody knows that HME is a huge problem now. The problem with training on it is that it's extremely dangerous and a lot of times you guys only get access to it a couple of times a year, which is not enough. Nobody wants to handle TATP or HMTD. So, enter TrueScent Canine. That's TrueScent, the letter K, the number 9.com. They manufacture an actual odor, not a pseudo. It's an actual explosive odor suspended in silica. So they do TATP, HMTD, RDX, TNT, PETN, ammonium nitrate, potassium chlorate, and they do a distractor odor too so that you can proof the dogs off of the training aids, but it's actual explosive odor suspended in silica. It's safe to handle. You're not going to blow yourself up. You're not going to endanger anyone else. And the dogs, through verified testing that TrueScent has done, will alert on both the training aids and then actual HME odor down the line through training. So hit them up. TrueScentCanine.com. That's the letter K, the number nine. TrueScentCanine.com. 
Highland Canine Training LLC. To all of my fellow LE Canine guys, Highland Canine should definitely be on your short list of vendors when it comes time to adding to your unit or replacing one of your dogs. Highland Canine offers green and pre-trained single and dual purpose dogs if you train in-house. But most importantly, they offer a full service canine academy with canine handlers courses, canine instructors courses, specialized advanced canine training, and canine supervisors courses. Jason and his staff of instructors have been there and done that in this game. They run these classes year-round, so go to their awesome website at www.tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's Tactical Police, the letter K, the number 9, training.com, and make your unit better. I want to take a second to talk about equipment selection for patrol work. One of the most important aspects of teaching and maintaining patrol functions is your equipment. Proper equipment selection and fit makes all the difference in the world when it comes to creating and maintaining patrol and sport dogs. This episode is possible in part with support from Arno at ALM Suits. Because of the importance of this equipment, I use ALM Suits exclusively. I've owned one for about five years and use it almost daily at the kennel and have caught thousands of dogs and tens of thousands of bites. Arno was able to make a great fitting suit for my lanky ass and I couldn't be happier with it. Arno can take your measurements and make you a suit each and everything he does in his shop in Vegas. Between the top-notch materials and the handmade aspect, you're getting some of the best bite equipment in the world from ALM. The suits come in a full range of weights, from training weight to comp weight, which is what I use because I'm not a pussy and you shouldn't be either. He offers some Kevlar inserts to make the thinner suits a little safer and more comfortable, plus they keep your tattoo artist happy. He makes a full range of toys and reward tugs also. Be sure to hit him up at alnk9equipment.com that's the letter K, the number 9, or arno, A-R-N-O at almsuits.com Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off off your first order tell him you heard it here now go get bit all right guys we are back this is a great episode man we haven't even come close to touching on this stuff in the past with janice baker from veterinary tactical group living down there in the mix with the boys tons of experience we didn't even get into like her whole <laughs> spooky background so to speak <laughs> all right i think she did but um janice if you've been listening is definitely a um a student of the numbers it's hard numbers you know if you can prove them numbers are uh, pretty hard to hard to beat yeah for sure so factual information goes have you so like i'm really super fascinated by like this temperature thing was this just something that somebody just kind of opined years ago and it's been one of those things that's been accepted as fact and taught at veterinary schools and no one took the time to go look at it exactly um and it, it was the studies that originally came out that led us to thinking those things you know the thing with the dangerous temperature levels and and um, the cooling methods and things like that. The studies were legit. They were actually really good. But one thing to consider is that most medical studies, especially veterinary studies, happen at universities or large academic type institutions. They don't happen in the field. And so there were two retrospective studies, which means they got records of dogs that had already had heat injury, and then they looked back at the histories of the dogs and the information on the dogs to try to, to see common risk factors like age of the dog, breed, things like that, what their temperatures were when they presented to the veterinarian. So they came up with, if a dog had a temperature of 106, 106 or over, he's more likely to die. If a dog had a temperature of below normal, so below 99, he was also more likely to die. And that's in a retrospective study to get all science and geeky 
working on this. It, a retrospective study just can't show cause and effect. It can only show associations between these numbers. So we, you know, most veterinarians don't have the time to trace that back scientifically and look at all of their sources and analyze that study. All they know is they read the abstract, you know, the little summary of studies, and they say, uh-oh, 106 is a de- dangerous temperature. Well, I don't want to let a dog get up to 106 and be dangerous, so I'm going to say let's shut them down when they're 104. They just came up with that. And so we, now we say 104 is when we need to stop them because we don't want to get them to that dangerous temperature of 106. Well, looking at that study as well, most of those dogs are pet dogs. They're not in shape. They're not canine athletes. And so now we're using data from chihuahuas and schnauzers and poodles and whatnot that probably, the, you know, the most exercise they get is chasing a ball in the backyard or walking around the block. And we're applying that to working dogs. So that's a, a fault of using that information from the get-go. Um, the other thing is those dogs had to come from somewhere. They had to come from the field somewhere. And a lot of the dogs were cooled down prior. That information was captured in that study. So they found that dogs that were cooled down before they got to the veterinarian stood a far greater chance of surviving. But that also skews that 106. What were they when they actually were heat injury? Were they 110, 112? We don't know. Um, all, because all we know is we took the temperature. The veterinarians took the temperature at the emergency room. And that's the temperature that gets recorded in this study. So the highest temperature I've ever seen a dog was 111, that the dog was normal. Now, the dog was really hot and we stopped him from working, but he wasn't a heat injury. And, and most thermometers only go up to 108, the little digital thermometers, and then it'll just have like an H for high. It's higher than they read because those thermometers are meant for babies and babies usually don't get to be 108 degrees. And so I had to use a scientific thermometer. That particular dog was using a an ingestible thermistor. So he, he swallows a pill that measures the temperature and sends it by radio to a little sensor. And that's at 108. We know that 100 or the, that little, it's called a core temp, that machine usually reads lower than rectal temperature. So I ran and got a scientific thermometer that I calibrate all the other thermometers. And it was 111. And the, we cooled the dog down and he went back to work the next day. So that doesn't mean that all dogs do that. That dog was a, a rock star as far as being in shape. But that's where that comes from. And, you know, it's it's not that they weren't, weren't correct. They were absolutely correct in that study. But we have to think of where that data came from, what dog were the population that was studied, and, you know, how can that be misconstrued later on. The other thing with the cold temperature, above 106 was too high, uh, below 99 was too cold. And that somehow got attributed to cooling the dog down too much. So they said dogs that were hypothermic, dogs that you know, 95 degrees, 94 degrees, whatever, they were more likely to die. And somehow veterinarians took that to be, they got cooled down with the water was too cold or the they got cooled down fast and that's what made them die. And that's not the case at all. Dogs that are dying get cold. That's just how the body works. So, but that has been misconstrued for, for years as well. And so there's, there's no evidence that says that cooling too fast is dangerous. And there's no evidence that says using cold water is dangerous or, or ice water is dangerous. There's really no evidence to support the opposite either. Nobody's ever studied it. So that's one of the things we're trying to do now with actual study. And of course, we can't make dogs get heat stroke. That would be a horrible way to do a study. (laughs) What we we have, they used to, you know, years and years ago when in the United States, we weren't that protective of dogs in research and they would do that. They would cause them heat stroke and then study them. And, And for decades, we haven't done anything like that. Thank goodness. But so now what we have to do is either take dogs, do more of those studies where we just take records of dogs that have had heat stroke and back on them, or we just exercise dogs to get them really hot, but keep them in a safe, safe zone as far as heat goes. And have you found a particular type of 
of work or workout or exercise that made them elevate faster than others? Yeah, so we haven't we haven't got enough data on this to publish in a study yet, um, but it's something that we're still working on. But anything in a muzzle, you know, we do a lot of muzzle fight work with the dual purpose dogs or the FTC right. type dogs. And anything in a muzzle will significantly raise the temperature. Now, we have had studies in that. We've finished them. They're just not published yet. And the other thing is the fight work because when they're holding on to a sleeve with their mouth, they're not panting as effectively. And, and if they've got a muzzle on, they it, can't pant. <laughs> they, they can't pant. And right. It doesn't matter what kind of muzzle it is with one exception. The big We thought that the big basket muzzles would be better, you know, the, the metal basket muzzle or the right. leather ones with all the holes in them. And it, it's turning out not really to be true. And we don't have enough data yet to say definitively, but lesson learned in the field. Absolutely. The basket muzzles are just as bad as any other kind of muzzle because their tongue can't hang out. And they really rely on their tongue, the tongue link to blow off the heat. Also, they have to open their mouth really, really wide. And even in like a Ray Allen style, you know, one of the faceplate muzzles, right. even if it's really big, they can't open their jaw as wide as, as they should be able to. So, and then bite right. work again, grabbing the sleeve, you know, and uh, a lot of times if you slip the sleeve afterwards, the dog trots around with it. We've seen dogs trot around and then just collapse. You know, they yep. really super high drive dogs, especially young dogs that just haven't figured out how to dog right yet. They'll um, they'll hold onto the sleeve and, and or a ball or something in their mouth and then they'll kind of start to stumble and finally drop it. In fact, that's one of the signs that we use for heat for detecting or preventing heat injury is if the dog self outs the toy. If that's you know that's their most favorite thing in the world, that ball or the sleeve. If they spit it out that just so they can pant, then that's a good time to that, shut that's, down. That's a sign. Like there's <laughs> here's your sign. sign. Yeah. Go get that motherfucker <laughs> exactly. some water and <laughs> yeah. I mean that's you'd think it's common I've sense, but yeah. yeah, I have too. No, I'm walking a dog off the field with the sleeve and they start getting wobbly. Yeah, or they spit I'm, something I'm out. Like, well, I have a dog that like won't out or well, we had a dog, well, several, but we had uh, the specific thing I'm thinking of. This dog would not out anything, and it was super hot outside, and he spit it out. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And then he kind of looked at me. I was like, oh, bro, let's go find some air conditioning. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And we we used to rely on body temperature. You know, there's all the gadgets that are the blue force temperature thing that you were talking about, the core temp. Those are all great. I love gadgets. They're great. But we, you know, and most of them advertise saying it alerts the handler to when the dog. Re- is a critical temperature level. But the problem is we, we don't know what critical temperature level is for every dog, for each individual dog. So we're trying to go away a little bit from teaching handlers, you know, when it gets this hot, do X, Y, and Z with them. Instead, we're trying to teach them the, the behavioral signs of thermal stress. And we don't call it heat stress because that's heat stress is a term for a low grade of heat injury. Thermal stress is normal. If, if you work hard, your dog works hard, he's going to get hot and that his body is equipped to handle it to a point. So we say, um, look for things like, you know, ref- refusing to come back to the handler in repetitive things like if you're throwing a ball to the dog or something the dog has to do over and over in the same way you'll notice you throw the ball the dog runs out with that intensity um, every time but when they get the ball when they start getting hot they'll start instead of running right back to you they'll kind of arc out or run behind you or play keep away and it looks like disobedience look like looks like the dog's being a jerk but really the dog is thinking like look man i'm a malinois and i have to chase this ball if you throw it i don't have a choice i have to chase it but once i've got it you're too stupid you keep throwing the ball every time I come back. So I'm going to keep the ball away from you for a few minutes so I can cool down. And so that's one of the first signs we see is just ignoring the handler or refusing to obey certain commands because
because they're just like, hey, dude, I got to cool down. I got to go over and hang out over here for a while in the shade. And then uh, there's other signs, but as one of the later signs, the sign that I say is that they absolutely drop dead, stop what you're doing and cool the dog down. And that the uncontrolled panting. So they, normally if the dog's panting, you can show them a toy, you can show them something that they want and they'll stop panting and look at you really intently, just even if just for a second. When they can't do that anymore, they don't care about their toy or their reward. They don't care about whatever you're trying to give them or the bite suit or anything, the decoy. That's a sign that their body is physically taken over in reflex and is panting because they can't help it anymore. Uh, that's, I think, kind of like the last warning you get before a full-on heat injury. So we're trying to train people to look for those signs and then correlate that with the dog's temperature, but don't rely on the temperature to tell you when to stop the dog. Wow, that's amazing stuff. Everybody listening to this will be like, uh, yeah, I see that a lot. I've seen that, um, especially the moving away from them with the ball in their mouth. I had a dog that came through my kennel a while ago, a little Malinois. She was awesome, but when she was done, she would just run off to the side and go lay down in the shade. She, There was no amount of coaxing her to get her to come back to you. She was like, screw you. I'm going to go lay over by the fence in the shade over here. And that, that dog loved to play fetch, so that's that was an easy tell. Yeah, it's an interesting comment because, you know, you have so many people, especially in the police canine industry and in personal protection, which is fucking smoke and mirrors anyway, and in the sport dog industry, and the one thing that these people talk about all the time is quote-unquote being able to read a dog. And half these motherfuckers can't read a newspaper, much less reading a dog, but they're talking about issues like, oh, the dog's in this drive or that drive, and the dog is doing this out of the other, but they can't read a simple fucking clue. Like, fucker, I'm hot. I'm going to go lay down or I'm cold or whatever and stop making me work. And it's so telling. One thing that I kind of want to segue into here is the instances of like gunshot and Afghanistan versus here versus, and then also the heat injuries here. So the instances of heat injuries in the United States, police working dogs versus in Trashganistan with military working dogs, why there's such a discrepancy, but it comes down to where we have police canine trainers or guys that call themselves trainers or, or these guys that are personal protection dog trainers or whatever. They're like, oh, you need to be able to read a dog to decoy, to be able to read a dog and like, y'all motherfuckers are killing dogs or hurting dogs because you can't recognize the sign the dog is in a state of distress from heat anyway. And, you know, my kennel master, my partner, Scott, he's super sensitive to that shit. So when we do bites in the summertime, in Oklahoma, it's hot, like Africa hot. Like, it'll get 110 degrees and the humidity here is ridiculous. So, you know, we'll do, I mean, I've had bite sessions that are a minute and 45 seconds. And we do three bites, four bites, put the dogs up, and they go to a kennel that is got misters going and all kinds of stuff. And it's markedly cooler in there. And then we get them out and do it again once their tongue's back in their head. And, you know, we do all this other stuff. Like, we tell the handlers, like, you know, you can't work the dog's tongue's hanging out of his mouth, like all this other stuff. And so, I don't know, the whole reading the dog comment kind of struck a chord with me because I know people are going to hear this and I get hate mail, which I don't give a fuck. Fuck you guys. But in the end, it comes down to that, you know, part of the studies that you've done and like Eric mentioned earlier is data, right? So, Eric, you had a gunshot thing too, though, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to kind of segue over into um, the, the actual tactical medicine part of it. So a couple years, we had a dog in my department, Jethro, that got shot and killed uh, on a call. And what happens is they go into this grocery store and the dog goes one way and the handler goes the other and they're searching and the dog finds the guy and the guy shoots him like five times. And he shoots him in the chest a few times. He has some, all, all the rounds miss everything. They go in, they come out the back. And then the one that ends up ultimately that he succumbed to was a shot that hit him in the head and it, it didn't penetrate but it caused a pretty traumatic 
traumatic brain injury that he never really came back from. So we're in the dark and the handler is back in the dark with the dog and he's trying to find exit wounds and where or entry and exit wounds so he can try to maybe pack them or, or stop the bleeding and everything like that. And he was having trouble because it was dark and because, you know, the hair. He actually, the dog had four wounds in his chest and, and Ryan couldn't find any of them. And, and there's a lot to do with that, you know, the, the stress and the adrenaline rush and everything going on. He's trying to hold a flashlight in his mouth and things like that. But so talking about the gunshot side of it, we'll get into what your research has shown as, as far as numbers go and things like that. What when, So when I was a handler, nobody cared. We never carried tourniquets and things like that for a dog. But the guys that are out there working, either out there in the dangerous spots, man, these, these inner cities that are having, you know, tons of gun violence and the... Um, you know, out by themselves, these guys like Border Patrol and everything, what do you think are the must-haves and what should they be really concentrating on for that type of situation? So if I had one minute or less to teach anyone tactical canine medicine, I would say first, stop any bleeding. Second, have a plan. So as far as equipment, we know from studies in military working dogs and most of the injuries in military working dogs are similar to law enforcement so we can extrapolate a little bit from from those dogs um, but when we look at did a study several years ago in gunshot wounds in military working dogs and out of 29 dogs 11 of them survived their injuries and uh, what we found was the things that saved the dog were the very very basic gauze rolls like the compressed gauze or the curlex or whatever kind of gauze we were using at the time and just packed into the wound and chest seals, right? It's very simple, just something sticky to stick over the hole in the chest if you can find it. And needles, the 14-gauge, 3-inch needles that we use for needle decompression of tension pneumothorax. So a $2 needle, uh, the chest seals are a little bit more expensive, you know, 30 bucks, whatever they were at the time, and gauze, a $2 roll of gauze. That's what was saving the dog. And then having a plan, knowing where to go and how you're going to handle this canine casualty. And like, you know, if you, if you didn't plan for that and now you have a canine casualty, all of a sudden, all of your other plans just come to a screeching halt. Um, you know, you don't know where to take the dog. Who's going to drive the dog? Are you going to throw it in the dog box in the back and then you drive the dog to the vet and now the dog doesn't get any treatment and you just hope it's all alive when you get there? Or what vet are you going to go to? Your veterinarian might be a general practitioner and that would be like going to, uh, you know, you get shot in the chest as a human and they take you to your doctor's office instead of a trauma center. And so no Knowing that the closest veterinarian is not necessarily the best veterinarian. To find a veterinary trauma center or a clinic that's open 24-7 and has the appropriate staff and training to handle major emergencies might be better to drive 30 minutes to that vet than it is to go 10 minutes to your local vet. Or if it's after hours, your vet's not even open. Where's the nearest veterinarian that's going to be open after after hours? So as far as equipment goes, the stuff that's saving dogs is really, really basic stuff. And it's something that, you know, people are buying a lot of these fancy canine trauma kits and we sell them with our company too but I somebody contacts me and says they want to buy a kit first thing I do is tell them I send them a list of what's in the kit and I say you know you can make this for a fourth of the cost of what I have to charge you for it and it's just so simple the other thing is the tourniquets you know everybody everybody agrees there's no doubt that tourniquets are saving lives and such a radical change in what we thought about tourniquets you know when I came in the army 20 years ago it was tourniquets the last resort if you're bleeding and now we know that it has to be the first 
first thing that you use. But with, with, with dogs, uh, you know, everybody wants to get tourniquets for dogs. But now let's step back and let's look at those numbers that we like so much and we say, how many dogs were out there that died that would have lived if I'd only had a tourniquet? And the answer is pretty much zero. Dogs, uh, their little legs are really skinny. They don't have a lot of muscle in their legs like we do. They're, the blood vessels in the lower part of their legs are really, really small. And I've seen uh, maybe 50 extremity gunshot wounds now in, in my career where the dog came in to the clinic or in the field and it had no prior treatment, no tourniquet, no pack, wound packing, nothing. And they didn't have any significant loss of blood. Um, in fact, I've never seen a dog that had a, just a gunshot wound or some kind of traumatic injury to their leg that needed a blood transfusion. And there's a, a, another study that was done by the University of Pennsylvania Vet School that showed in trauma in dogs and extremity trauma in dogs rarely needed the transfusion. So dogs just don't bleed like humans do from their extremities. Sometimes they do. That There's exceptions, of course, to everything. But in general, dogs aren't dying from extremity hemorrhage or bleeding from their leg, leg wounds. So tourniquets aren't really needed. Their blood vessels are little tiny and you can just put some gauze over the top of it and wrap it with an ace bandage, you know, a $2 ace bandage, and have the same effect that in a human you'd require some kind of specialized tourniquet. But that doesn't stop the companies from making tourniquets for dogs. And um, a lot of these are, you know, they make some kind of tourniquet that they hope to sell to the military and, and law enforcement, get a big contract, and they don't get the contract. So now they have a warehouse full of tourniquets and they stamp a image of a dog paw or something on it and try to sell it to the veterinary world. I see that all the time. And it's like, well, good on them. We all want to try to make money. Um, but that kind of lends itself to this, this overarching problem of building gadgets and building building stuff to try to market to the canine community when there's actually no operational requirement for it or very little operational requirement. And that's extremely true in veterinary, in the veterinary support area of uh, tactical medicine. So long-winded rant about that. <laughs> the stuff that's going to save your dog's life is probably really cheap stuff and it's the same stuff you find in a human, we call them IFACs, individual first aid kit or blowout kit. Minus the tourniquet, we rarely, rarely need that. And the exception is if the dog's leg has been amputated or uh, partially amputated and that you just can't get a direct pressure dressing over that very well. But you could take an ace bandage and wrap it really, really tight over the leg where you'd place a tourniquet and it's probably going to work just fine. So where in dogs, and there's a lot of people don't know this question, where in dogs are the, like, you know, in humans, we know where the femoral artery is and things. Where are those arteries in dogs that you really got to check that that's where the, they might be pumping out a ton of blood? Yeah, so the femoral artery especially, um, and that's way up in the groin. So if you found the, you know, reach under the dog, the inside of the dog's back leg, and you feel the bone, you fall on the bone up to where you can't go any farther. Now you're hitting their belly. Right around there, that's where the femoral artery is. What can happen is, say they get impaled with something, the dog jumps over a fence or gets shot or something like that, that artery can be ruptured and bleeding a lot, but you don't see the blood. Just like you mentioned with Jethro and other dogs, uh, an entrance wound for an impalement or a gunshot can be really, really small and hard to see because of their fur and or darkness or whatever. And so they could have a little tiny hole there and they're bleeding inside their skin and they're they're bleeding between their the bone and the muscle and their and their skin. And that area has a lot of room to pack in bleeding. So really, you know, you have to kind of try to keep calm and, and we say rake the fur, curl your fingers over and rake your fingernails through the fur, hoping that your finger catches in a little tiny hole or a defect in the skin and then it identifies it that way. Well, then it's not really bleeding outside the skin. There's not much you can do about that except just 
a big, deep, direct pressure pack. Um, the other place dogs bleed, like to bleed a lot in, is right behind their great paw pad. There's two little arteries that run down either side of the leg there on the front and back leg, and they're called the, either on the front, it's the metacarpal artery and the back, the metatarsal artery. And for being little tiny vessels about the size of a pencil lead, they bleed like crazy. Um, it would probably take a dog a long time to bleed out, you know, an hour or so. Uh, you got a plenty of time, but it, it's a big mess, and it's in a hard-to-spot um, area because it can be a, a little tiny nick behind the paw pad that gets in one of those arteries. They bleed like crazy. And that for that, just pack some gauze directly on it, wrap it with something like an ace bandage or wrap it with the rest of the gauze and wrap it really, really, really tight and then just prevent the dog from walking. Carry the dog. He walks, he's going to be stretching that little artery out and bleeding even more. But those, I'd say those are the two biggest parts. You know, if most gunshot wounds, we know, they go into the body. I mean, most fatal gunshot wounds go into the body where you can't, you can't do anything about it. They're bleeding internally and there's practically nothing you can do in the field. You have to get somewhere where you can do surgery and, you know, get the dog a blood transfusion and appropriate treatment. So some of the stuff that you've published shows that in the United States, most police dogs are killed from traffic accidents, not from heat <laughs> injury, not from getting right. shot or stabbed or like blown up. So talk a little bit about what those injuries look like mostly and how to treat them to have the best chance of survival post-accident. Yeah, so the two main ways with the vehicle accidents, one is the dog is running loose, you know, they're pursuing a suspect or just training or chasing a ball, you know, they throw a Kong and the Kong bounces all crazy and goes off in a direction you didn't expect and the dog goes after it. So the dog runs in, in front of a moving vehicle. So that's one kind. The other is the dog's in the vehicle and the service vehicle is in a wreck, either gets hit or crashes or something else happens to it. So the dog's in the back and the dog box and gets tossed around pretty hard. Um, and so in both of those cases, the primary injuries are just blunt trauma and they're usually in internal injuries, but a lot of broken back, uh, spinal cord injuries or head injuries. So all of those, in a nutshell, there's not very much you can do, just life-saving stuff you can do in the field. But with some exceptions, a dog that's got a head injury and is bleeding might have bitten his tongue and might have a lot of blood or, or other um, obstruction, just clearing their airway. And, you know, of course, if the dog's awake, then you got to worry about getting bit. But holding the dog in a way that his head drains down, for example, let the blood or any other anything else drain out. Uh, if they have visible injuries, just treating those like just like you would in, in tactical medicine. If they're bleeding, apply direct pressure, stop the bleeding. If they're having trouble breathing, clear their airway, help them, them or make it easier for them to breathe. And if you have the capability to breathe for them, so just mouth to snout respiration or if you have EMS capability, you know, providing oxygen or, or any of the more advanced treatment. And then, you know, it follows in tactical medicine, we we do treat hemorrhage first, airway obstruction, and then resp uh, respiration or respiratory support. And in like Red Cross First Aid, we used to say airway breathing circulation. But we know from tactical medicine that you're more likely to bleed out faster than you are to die of respiratory problems. So we treat that first. So do that. If they're bleeding, stop the bleeding. If their airway is obstructed, try to clear their airway, get the blood or any other, the tongue or anything else out of the way, and then help them breathe, support their breathing any way you can, make it easier for them to breathe. One of the main things with that is we have a tendency when we're trying to treat a dog to try to force the dog to lay down uh, and restraining the dog. And if a dog is in panic mode because he's not getting enough air, the dog put himself, if, if he's conscious, he'll put himself in the position that he can breathe the best. It, we call it the position of comfort. The dog will know that. So if the dog wants to stand up, let him stand up. If 
he wants to sit, let him sit. If he wants to lay down, let him lay down. The dog's going to go to the position that makes it easiest for him to breathe. So don't try to obstruct that or, or prevent that in any way. And then uh, it falls back to having the plan, you know, not panicking. If you were just in a wreck with your dog in your vehicle, how are you going to get that dog to the veterinarian? You know, what if you have to stay with your vehicle or having a plan of, and not just a plan of what veterinarian to go to, but your team or your department or organization has to have a backup plan. How do you immediately get people to respond to help that dog or that handler out with that situation? And let's do that all the time. We see these cases of where they say, you know, we're, we're worried about the handler. If the handler is injured, who's going, how are we going to deal with it? What if the dog is protecting the handler? And in reality, that just doesn't happen that much. The dogs are kind of just confused and they're not really, you know, and even if they are trying to be aggressive, they're <laughs> getting another experience dog person on the scene to deal with dog. We, we've done that training with a lot of law enforcement agencies where we, we have their medics or the, you know, like SWAT teams and things that have medics organic to them. We have the handlers lay down and pretend to be injured and the dog's tethered to them. And then the medics have to come up and take control of the dog. And, and the first couple times we did that, the handlers were really certain their dogs weren't going to let anybody handle them. And just something as simple as like grabbing a jacket and presenting it to the dog to bite on or um, finding a ball or a stick or something like that. The dogs were like, hey, dad, I'll call 911, good luck with that. And they were <laughs> extremely easy to get off of their handlers. And they were a little bit, got your feelings hurt a little bit. But, but have, you know, a, a panicked person that doesn't know anything about dogs is not going to be able to do that. And so having a plan of, you know, training your non canine people on your own team or your organization to, to handle a dog in an emergency is really important. And a lot of these cases where we see the vehicle accident, especially if the dog was in the vehicle, because now the, the handler might be hurt as well. And we've heard horror stories about having to go get a family member or waiting hours for another canine person to get there to get the dog out of the vehicle and, and meanwhile the dog needs to get to a vet so you know having a plan having having other people that aren't canine being as, as familiar enough with your dog to know that, that they can handle the dog and the other thing is an, an inadvertent dog bite isn't an instant death sentence so sometimes you just gotta man up and grab the dog and, and if you do get bitten that's horrible but if it's me saving the life of the handler or, or the dog you know sometimes we've all been bitten before I got bit today <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. So, yeah, no, like you're not going to die. <laughs> so, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of something that we uh, teach in some of the classes for integration courses for special operations and SWAT. It's like how to have non-handlers handle dogs. So, yeah, exactly. and I can tell you for a fact, I, you know, I'm real big on scenario training and all the years I ran that large training group, I don't know. I can tell you I was remiss in training that and how to someone that to, to get the dog away from the guy. And the funny thing is we had few traffic accidents where our canine guys got hurt pretty good and we had to get their dog out because like oh man we you know we all carry the sleeve in the trunk and everything it ended up being actually really easy on some badass dogs like nasty dogs and they're like okay i went away from this thing and they yeah. <laughs> take him take him to the vet and then i show up as the trainer you know they call me i show up and some random cop is sitting there holding a the leash with this dog who bites like 30 people a year and it's like <laughs> Okay, I guess I guess okay. this dog's cool today. When I uh, was with Naval Special Warfare, we had my, my office was literally outside the kennel door, or my desk was, and we had this one dog that was he was really mean. He was one of those asshole dogs, and he got out every once in a while. And you think I kept thinking they were messing with me because you know can't we just like put a lock on the cage or something? Mm. So I had a desk full of toys, you know, Kongs and tennis balls and dog biscuits because I had to get through the kennel to get to the clinic. 
you know, walk from my desk. I had to walk through the kennel corridor. And I would, you know, I would look out there and the dog would be running loose. And I find, I was scared to death of him. You know, I'm not afraid of any dog. That dog would have tore me up. And I finally learned that I grabbed a dog biscuit and told the dog to sit. He would, he looked really confused. Like, I want to bite you, but you've got a dog biscuit. And I could just toss it into his kennel and he'd go back. And, or, you know, roll a ball in the opposite direction and run through into the kennel and then call somebody to come get the dog. And I had to use that several times. Uh, and then one morning I came in and the dog was actually in my office, gotten out. And I walked in and he's sitting in my office and he's going through the bowl of dog toys. And, you know, they'd set me up. They were doing that on purpose to scare me. But, you know, it was, it was just don't panic. Just back away. The dog's not there to kill you. He's there to get a ball or do dog things. And, you know, just leverage that and the, the dog will probably be cooperative. That was awesome. All right. So this to me is has been probably one of the top two or three most informative episodes we've ever done. Yeah, no in, shit. In the working dog stuff. Are you still going around doing seminars and teaching classes? We are. We I think last year we did about 20 of them. The year before that, we did 28 events. So we Damn. Have, have about 20, 20 instructors, that um, independent contract instructors that work for me. And they, they're all at the top of their game. They're veterinarians, technicians, paramedics, and dog handlers that have, we have invited to come join us because they're great and what they do and we, we put them through a several day mock deployment selection course just like I had to do in the military and you know they go on this fake deployment and then everything goes wrong um, and we make sure that we've got quality people who aren't just full of BS and the main thing is you know can we put you through five days of stress in a really uncomfortable situation with not very much sleep and we still like you do I still get along with you after five days or do you, you know do you start becoming a jerk to everybody and so we, we have about 20 of these instructors now that are just fantastic We've got a, about a handful of them that will go on the road even without me and, and teach the class. So we try to do about 20 a year on the road, and I'd say I'm at maybe 15 of those. And then and then my other instructors take the ones that I that I can't make it to. But yeah, we offer the class um, all over the United States. We've been Canada and Australia a couple times and taught it there as well. And then we have a bunch of online training and other things. And, and then we do a lot of just one-off speaking events and things where we'll go and teach for an hour. You know, a, a lot of canine organizations will come in and speak, do like a dinner talk or something. But yeah, that's probably the thing that we do the most, even though research is kind of my favorite. That's the thing we do the most and really, really happy. I mean, I don't know how many handlers and paramedics and things we trained since we started doing this in 2009. I mean, our first class, we had to beg them and pay them lunch to get them to come to it. And it was free. <laughs> and like, oh man, another canine first aid class. We don't want this. And then the word started to spread. You know, now we're teaching all over the world. That's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. So in 2019, like, where can people get a hold of your schedule? Like, what you're going to offer? Do you have a website? Is it social media based? How do you do it? We do. We have a website. It's www.vettacgroup.com or V-E-T-T-A-C group.com. And right now, we only have a couple classes listed for for 2019, but we've got about five that we're in the process of scheduling. So we'll, and, and then they pop up. Usually they're scheduled about four or five months ahead of time. They'll pop up on our website. And if you don't see one there, we have a ton of classes that we don't advertise because a specific unit has requested it and just contracted us for the class. So if you don't see a class that's in your area or in your time frame, give us a call because um, we probably have something going on that, that we can get you into, you know, with another unit or something. And we're always looking for people to host 
classes and host a class all you need to do is provide the venue provide the place to, to hold the class it doesn't cost the unit or the, the group anything to, to host it and we give you a couple free spots in the class on top of it everybody's interested in this training that's how we do the HRD thing too and uh, we'll put all that contact info in the notes so if you're looking at this on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you're seeing it you should have a clickable link there that we'll put in for uh, their website or their website link do you have any uh, social media you want to plug at all uh, yeah absolutely we have a, a huge Facebook following and uh, um, just veterinary technical group on Facebook we have about 13,000 followers and we post a lot of updates a lot of uh, things that are going on we post a lot of repost a lot of news articles and things but we'll we have a lot of discussions on working dog topics and things research all that and we welcome people to contact us through Facebook we um, we follow that really closely and we do Instagram but I have to admit I am old and non-technical and so I have a much younger much more savvy person that does that for me but it's veterinary technical group on Instagram and we also have a Twitter feed again I don't handle that uh, because I'm not that kind of a person but <laughs> that Facebook's a great way to get a hold of us and then our website we have a lot of links on the website to some of our research studies and things and you can always email us and ask for copies of these studies that we've done we just because of copyright issues we're not allowed to post some of our online open source but if you ask us for it we'll send it to you yeah you guys got to step up your Instagram game I'm like there's three posts come on man we got to do better than that Instagram that you get a three posts lot it's, out of it Instagram is, is really new for us I, I think it's actually just within like the last month or something yep. I saw something that said VTG on Instagram and I turned to my our operations manager and said we have Instagram and she just rolled her eyes at me so yeah, <laughs> yeah. don't worry about it yeah <laughs> awesome awesome I, did, I listened I, I to, really to uh, Alicia talking about the importance of social media, so I'll, I'll stop. Yeah, yeah, she's the uh, just she, have she, someone else do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's she really right, exactly. a social media ninja. So yeah, awesome. Ted, where about you? Awesome. Where can we find you at? On the Instagrams at Ted underscore Summers, and then the Kindle Instagram is Torchlight K nine Letter K the number nine, and then of course uh, we got Working Dog Dry Goods, which is Working Dog Dry Goods, and then the podcast Instagram is Working underscore Dog underscore Radio, which is where we do all of our contests and all of our daily stuff announcing episodes and everything else which we had a contest going on right now which should be coming to a close where we're giving away I don't know I added it up it was like $5,000 worth of shit and today we gave away rayon harness or super nice one it's actually sitting here next to me in my desk and uh, some Tricos CBDs uh, and then we've got oh man I don't know it, that's not my thing that's Alicia she's a producer She's she's got that kind of stuff nailed down we've got still another 10 days or something to give us stuff away before Christmas so this one ever before that but that's where you'll find all that shit that and on Facebook so where can we find you well I'm not even going to plug my social media or anything right now what I'm going to talk about is two different things one you guys have heard us talk about it's all the videos and everything about Bravo 3 Tripwire Operations Group's seminar they got coming up and down in Daytona Florida in March Bravo 3 it's amazing it's it's not just canine it's canine SWAT explosives there's stuff there for firefighters there's all kinds of cool stuff it's a really nice pretty fun seminar very informative wide wide array of topics but here's the thing tripwire decided they're going to start giving free admissions to all law enforcement officers so when you sign up they have two different discount codes one is b3 law the letter b the number three law or stay safe 2019 it's a hundred percent discount on the admission for bravo three ted and i will be there we'll we'll have a class we're talking about scenario-based training and we'll probably have a work dog radio booth it's it's daytona in march if you're from the north at all 
fall. You'll understand. March sucked. When I was a kid, March was spring. March is still freaking winter now. <laughs> paradigm has shifted. It sucks. It's the worst Fuck. month of the year. It's fucking so global warming. Check it out. And in the meantime, Patreon.com or Patreon, however you're going to say it, Patreon.com, Working Dog Radio. It's our subscription service. And we love it. We love you guys on there. Put an exclusive content. A lot of our t-shirt things come out first to Patreon members at third or quarter of the price that everyone else pays. So yeah. uh, check it out. Patreon.com, Working Dog Radio. Janice, this was amazing. I loved it. I'll probably listen to this episode 20 times and I'm going to have all my guys right. listen to it. I loved it. For sure. Great. And yes, you, yes. You, try, you try to stay warm down there. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think you guys got some storm lately, didn't you? <laughs> Did dip into the 50s down there? No. Um, yeah, it's a 55 today. We uh, we had snowmageddon here in North Carolina, about 10 miles north of my house. They, they had like six inches of snow. We had nothing. <laughs> so we're doing pretty good. Yeah. Right on. All right, guys. Great episode. Appreciate everything. Keep at it. And we'll see you on the next one. Yep. Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll talk to you. We'll talk to everybody after the first year. We'll see you. We love USA Canine Dog Toys. They are inspired by military objects and built to withstand the demanding use of professional canine handlers. USA Canine Dog Toys are made in the U.S. from a durable super chewer rubber compound. Ted and I love them and use them all the time. Go check them out at www.usa-k9.com. Use the promo code K9PRO. Everybody loves stuff that goes boom. And we couldn't talk about stuff that goes boom without talking about Tripwire Operations Group. They're some of the best in the industry at stuff that makes loud noises and blows stuff up, specifically for guys on this podcast. For if you're handling an explosive dog or you're a trainer of an explosive dog, they have one of the most well-rounded, ready-to-go kits in the correct amounts and odors for any national standard or state standard certification. Head over to tripwireops.org to check it out. They're headquartered in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and a group of first responders dedicated to serving first responders. They believe that the most highly trained and prepared first responders create a safer America. They prepare you guys and other first responders and military to protect our country by providing products, services, training, and relationships which together no one else provides. In fact, they've done several HME large hide courses recently, which is a really valuable thing for explosives handlers because you're not really able to get that much odor in one place at one time safely. And these guys do a fantastic job. Be sure to head over to tripwireops.org and check out the full list of classes they've got going on and have contact info there on the website. Again, tripwireops.org. This episode of Working Dog Radio is being brought to you by Highland Canine Training LLC, offering unbeatable police canine training and handler education programs that are science-based, research-driven, and some of the most progressive programs in the industry. Go check them out at www.tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's Tactical Police, the letter K, the number nine training. You got your reasons, I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young now. Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.